This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Mike Bannerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 206, brought to you in association with Smart and ListedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Omid Malikan to talk about trust in FS and, in particular, trust in crypto. Omid is a decade or so veteran of the crypto world, who, as well as lecturing on the crypto world at the Columbia Business School, is the author of The Story of Blockchain, a Beginner's Guide which gets an impressive 4.5 stars from 82 reviews on Amazon, and also the author of his upcoming Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets and Platforms. So, one way or another, Omid knows a thing or two. As you all know, we don't touch on the crypto very much on the LFP, for no particular reason other than that the LFP tends to concentrate on the fin end of fintech rather than the tech end of fintech. Well, There is that and my deep suspicion of a market which may have some good things about it, but also by this stage has some tens of thousands of Ponzi schemes whose final value is likely to be zero. Well, that and the the notorious things like killing all the world's polar bears. And minor matters that for years James Corbett of the open-sourced Intel show The Corbett Report has been saying something along the lines, I haven't paid that much attention recently, that Bitcoin, blockchain et al is a psyop opening the door for something worse. And of course now we find ourselves in a world where Literally, the majority of the world's central banks, you know, those entities who do such a good job of enriching bankers and bankrupting the currency and the people, are looking at introducing CBDCs. And then we have minor matters in the crypto world, such as the so-called stable coins. Oh, the hubris. An example of which, anybody who follows it, Terra Luna, apparently, which I didn't know much about until it appeared on YouTube recently. A stable coin, which impressively made it to over $100 ago, but is now worth less than one one-hundredth of a cent not so stable. Anyway, the whole scene swirls and whirls like the ceiling does when one's had way too much to drink at a party and thinks it might be a good idea to lie down. So it's definitely a world in itself. However, as the LFP explained the blockchain mechanism way back in 2014, resulting in passing with feedback from folks who ran seminars at the time explaining how it worked, to me and my guest that we'd both got it wrong. We hadn't. And more recently, the LFP has been pretty much focused on money per se. It seemed like a very good time to revisit this whole crypto topic, not from the bottom-up mechanistic perspective this time, but from the 30,000 feet level. And who better to talk to us than Omid? So, with all that swirling, and with me having checked out some about 1,000 browser tabs today trying to sort out a holiday, maybe I'll break the habit of a lifetime and just agree with Omid. Or maybe, as this whole complex scene is way easier than booking Greek islands at the last minute, I went. We shall all have to see. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning to you, Omid, and good afternoon to me. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Good afternoon, Mike. Thank you for having me. So, you're in New York, which has probably got better weather than London today, which is rather grey and wet. 
And we were just talking briefly before we kicked off about a whole bunch of things. I was about to say more interesting than crypto, but of course nothing is more interesting than crypto to a crypto person. But one of which was uh, holidays, going back to my thousand browser tabs, making me immensely grumpy, which of course due to a lack of professionalism I shall be unable to uh, disguise for the podcast. And we were talking about the joys or otherwise in the internet age of booking holidays, booking trips. I mean, back in the day when I started my career, there were people called secretaries and you'd say to your secretary, I'm going to Japan on business in two weeks time. Can you sort it? And they'd go away and they'd sort it and they'd come back and they'd say, here you go, here are your tickets. And you'd fly off and it was all very simple. And when you wanted to go on holiday yourself, you'd go to something called a travel agent and you'd go there and you'd say, I want to go to Greek islands. And they say, oh, yes, okay. And you come, you come back and they show you two or three holidays. And you say, I'll have that one. And that was it. And then the internet came along and invented the wonder of choice. All this information, a million reviews of everything. It's all, everything's possible. Uh, and frankly, this will sound a bit rude in English, actually, but it, it, it's, it's polite in French. It's a fucking nightmare. You know, you, it's this excess choice. It just ruins your life. You know, I, I've got no neurons left to talk to you about complicated things at all, actually. So... Yes, it's sometimes be careful what you wish for. Uh, excess information is perhaps even worse than uh, a deficit of information. So how are you, um, as somebody in New York, how are you finding sort of holidays and flying around and uh, at least unlike your neighbours slightly further to the north, you're allowed out of the country without having a sort of a, an injection? Yeah, I'm uh, avoiding the topic altogether by trying to minimise travel for the exact reasons that you said. I also have this problem where it's... Uh, it's funny, it's like having spent years trying to become an expert on something with the emphasis on trying. I realize more and more how little I know about everything else. And uh, when I try to do something like figure out how all of this holiday booking business is supposed to work now with all these different websites and all the advice that people give about how to try to find the best deals and all of that, I find it more overwhelming than ever because clearly I have no idea what I'm doing. Yes, I think I've mentioned it before, but I've listened to a, a chap called Ajahn Samedo, who's, I think, the world's longest Western Buddhist monk. He was an American guy for at least 10,000 hours or 20,000 hours of various talks by him. And he said when he was 18, he knew it all. And he's now about 88. And he said, now I'm 88. I realise I know very little about anything. <laughs> so wisdom, wisdom comes as you get, as you get older. And, and the sad thing is for all these books and all these websites and all the, all the studying, you realise that there's a kind of fractal complexity of the world. You keep zooming in and you just meet more and more complexity. It's like I look at you as a person, but if I zoomed into all your trillion cells and I zoomed into all your microbiome and I zoomed into all your mitochondria, it wouldn't take much zooming in for it to sort of completely overwhelm me. And uh, mind you, it's probably easier than, than, than booking this holiday at the, at the last minute. <laughs> yeah, here, here. Right. So we were talking about names, which I always have a bit of a fascination about. Um, going back to the old world, actually, one thing that's got better these days is that for decades, stuff was done over the telephone before the internet. And I must have had to spell my name Balleman a million times. And no one ever got it right. Even after I told them how to spell it, they... They never got it right. So it's always given me a fascination for names ever since. And uh, you're called Omid Malikan, and I haven't come across any Omids before, nor had I come across any Malikans. Mind you, you probably haven't come across any Balamans, although you may have come across some Mikes. All true. So where have you got your good name from? I was originally born in Iran, and I was actually born during the Iranian evolution, which explains my name, because Omid is the word for hope in Farsi. 
It's a very common boy's name, actually. And then uh, Malakan is just a region in the country, so I suppose at some point my ancestors came from there. Oh, that's it. That's interesting. Well, when I went on uh, a honeymoon many moons ago to, to Bali, of course, the, every hotel we checked in, they said, oh, you must have come from Bali, because they pronounced it Bali, man, in my particular case. And I do remember that in this country, nobody ever bothered with a second name at all. And actually, second names, surnames were introduced over here, so you could tax people. Because huh. you said it's Mike. It'd be very hard to tax Mike because there's lots of them around and you, you never know which one is which. And I noticed either it's a Freudian slip or it's a sort of a, an interestingly sort of PC thing um, or a diplomatic thing. But you called it the Iranian evolution. And it was an evolution, although plenty of people, people call it the revolution. Either that or my, my, my headphones are messing up. If I said that, it must have been a Freudian slip. It was definitely, as far as I'm concerned, not an evolution. But it was a revolution. Yes, and I, I remember that uh, at the time when I was young, my mother one day said, oh, there's this new kid, come to, you know, come, just joined the road, you can play with him, and he's from Iran or something. I had no idea what it was at all and just played and, and completely forgot about it. And I think, as I mentioned before, actually, there was a guy nearby who was also Welsh. And Welsh seemed much weirder than Iran, because Iran was far, far away, and, and what did um, one know? And it's a bit of a pity, actually, because in terms of holidays, the one place that Bridget and I would love to go is Iran, because it's an amazing country. And talking of Greeks, your ancestral uh, enemies quite some time ago who you had plenty of um, uh, battles with and you know marathons and all, all these kind of things. A truly ancient culture, but uh, for fairly understandable reasons. Um, they don't seem to like the Brits very much, although my mother managed to get there once on, on holiday. It's a wonderful country, great people, but uh, at the time, and this is a few decades ago, they were, they were sort of quite poor. Yeah, and, and the Brit thing is actually funny. Iranians, like a lot of Middle Easterners, I suspect, are big fans of conspiracy theories. And uh, the, the Brits still loom large in many of them, perhaps because of the geopolitical stuff that went down around the time of the Second World War and the, the Shah wanted to remain neutral and the Allies didn't like that. So they sort of kicked them out and replaced them with his son and et cetera. So I have family members who will still um, tell me that some major political development that happened in Iran recently was of British or CIA design or usually a joint venture. That's interesting. Well, I have this controversial, in modern political terms, idea that uh, the British did bring a lot of good to the world. We created infrastructure all over the place. We turned up in places like India. They had no, no human rights whatsoever. The, the, there were no laws to apply to the individual citizen and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, a businessman I know, uh, he's um, from Calcutta, as is his wife. And uh, his wife once waxed very eloquently to me about where women's rights would, were in India before the British arrived and you know, banned them from sort of being thrown on the, the funeral pyres, the husbands and, and all that kind of stuff. So like most things, it's quite complicated. But I have to say, I do hang my head in shame when it comes to Iran and the deals that the Brits and the Americans did over the oil, over the oil price and the Shah. But I, I sort of kind of, without knowing too much about it, I blame the Americans and the, the CIA. By that stage, we're already a bit of a puppet. I mean, we're a complete puppet these days. We're like a sort of a senile person who's been sort of taken over by their sort of black sheep kid. And we just sort of do whatever they, they say. But, but anyway, let's hope it all resolves at some point in time because I'd like to go there. Either that or I need to change nationality, but we've got plans for that as well, actually. So how did you get from leaving Persia, Iran, at the age of nine to uh, now lecturing about crypto and um, blockchain and writing books and crazy things like that? I mean, maybe you want to miss out the next nine years because other than sort of your first girlfriend and all that kind of stuff, they probably didn't do much cryptoing before the age of eight. <laughs> no, definitely not. 
The short of it is that I, after college, I had a financial services career like a lot of people did back then. This was like in the early 2000s. And then I left it all behind after the 08, 09 period and the financial crisis and moved on to other things. But at some point in 2013, a friend of mine who had taken an interest in Bitcoin asked me to help her acquire some. And I had less than zero interest. My opinion of it back then was the same as a lot of people's then and now that it's just some stupid internet thing that only appeals to criminals. But nevertheless, I decided to help my friend. And in doing the first Bitcoin transaction and interacting with a blockchain, which mind you, I had no idea what any of this meant. I do not have a technology background. I was just like a, a trader, which as you well know, means I know nothing about anything, including trading. But what fascinated me about doing that first crypto transaction was that at some point, sometime after I initiated it, my some wallet I had installed on my computer popped up an alert and it said, your coins are here. Which was this remarkable thing to me because the one thing that had become clear in years of working on Wall Street is that you never actually own anything in the traditional financial system. There is an army of intermediaries like banks, brokers, exchanges, custodians, clearing houses between you and your assets. And for good reason. But that Bitcoin transaction to me was remarkable because here you have something that's purely digital. It has no imprint in the physical world. And yet I understood enough at that point to know that I owned it and I controlled it, which cuts both ways. Like it, 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 could, it means that I had sovereignty in what I decided to do with it. Like I could send it to you and nobody could stop me. But it also means that like a precious watch or a $100 bill, I could lose it or it could be stolen from me. And if it was, I couldn't just call the customer service number on the back of my credit card and ask for a refund and a replacement. This was also around the time of uh, one of the biggest Bitcoin hackings in history. As uh, your listeners have probably heard, there are always these spectacular failures where suddenly it's like, ah, you know, 100 million or half a billion dollars worth of some crypto asset was just stolen. And that was generating a lot of bad press. But what was fascinating to me was that, again, we're talking about something that's purely digital. And for the first time in history, something digital had been stolen and could not be replaced. That doesn't work in any other context. Like nobody worries about, oh, well, what if somebody hacks Spotify and steals all the digital music? Uh, and they don't worry about it because the digital music has already been copied and replicated and stolen, which is also why it's borderline worthless. So these two events began my almost now decade-long journey of trying to understand, A, how is this possible? And that led to me writing my first book, because as uh, you probably know, it's uh, you can't really learn about something until you try to write about it. And then after you write about it, you should try to teach it. And then more recently, my focus has been on, well, what does this technology change? I understand enough about how it works, but that doesn't mean anything to most people. Like You don't worry about how the web servers that the fintech industry uses work. Right? You worry about... like. What is the business model here? Where is the disruption? How will the future user experience be different, et cetera? And in one thing I heard just about the time I was finishing my book, which I found very interesting, because it absolutely reflected my process. I don't know whether you came across it. I think it was Charles Moore talking about writing, I think it was a very extensive, full three-series biography on Margaret Thatcher. He had access to all of her primary papers and all that kind of stuff. And he's talking about writing a 
you know, three volumes and goodness knows how many thousands of pages, shall we say, for the sake of argument. And he said the interesting thing about a project like that is only when you've written the book or the books in his case, and then you read them through yourself that you actually you start to address interesting questions <laughs> because it's like, you're, you, you know, you're climbing up higher and higher and you think you've understood it, but then you, you've understood quite a lot, you've explained it, but then you look up and go, oh, I didn't address that and oh, I didn't address that. And it's somehow that the, the higher peaks become more evident. And certainly when I was writing my book, it's only when I kind of thought I'd finished it, quotes, unquotes, and then I kind of read it. I thought, gosh, OK, so how do all these apparently random changes in the structure of the company over a period of time, how can I explain that simply? Which I now can by saying there's a you know, V1, V2 and V3. V1 um, chartered companies, owner-centric. V2 management-centric, uh, you know, a company law company. And V3 corporate governance company, where the state tells you that you know, bad people like whitey men like me shouldn't be on boards. I'm not joking, that's what actually the FCA said last year uh, in its paper, roughly speaking. Now, I've said that in a sort of 30 seconds, but I read the book and I had no idea. And I thought, oh gosh, you scratch your head and you, you know, it's almost like you add another layer on a wedding cake kind of stuff. And then you get to the top layer of the wedding cake. You go, okay, that'll do. I'll just, just ship it. So do you have the same thing, which is that you're kind of working bottom up. You're explaining everything. And then you see the horizon, the landscape that you've drawn. I think, hmm, that actually raises one or two other questions that I haven't really thought about or, or that I need to communicate more clearly. Yes. In fact, with the, my new book, I actually did not know what I wanted to say until I was probably 150 pages into it and then began this painstaking process of rewriting and researching and learning. And uh, also, perhaps the best thing any writer could do is get an editor because they will tell you what you haven't covered and what you need to rewrite and relearn and research some more. Yes, I didn't have a strategic editor. I had a tactical editor, and she would uh, say things like, you're not allowed to say that Pandora, as in Pandora's box, is a hottie totty. And I said, well, why not? And I did. Because <laughs> she was. She was. Zeus designed her as the ultimate hottie totty who was irresistible. That was the whole point of the, the story, you see. But she was very sort of PC being in the um, publishing industry. So, well, maybe leading on into the main course then, maybe you can explain, having written a book that was, uh, has done really well on Beginner's Guide to Blockchain, what it was that made you, A, go back and write another book? Because <laughs> having written one f- once, you, you know the answer to how hard can it be, answer h- harder than you might think. But then B, what was it that led you to start writing another 150 pages, which made you, led you to work out that actually what you should be writing about is trust? What was that process? Because I think that really relates to this whole main course topic of, of trust in FS and, and in particular trust in crypto and what does trust mean? Indeed. Yeah. For my first book, the challenge I set for myself was figure out the simplest, most relatable way to explain a very confusing topic. Like, you know, what is a blockchain? What is a token? What is a smart contract, etc. cetera? Uh, and then after a few years later, I wanted to challenge myself even more. So I said, well, I want to now talk about what all of this changes. So the average person, like how proof of work mining works or all of that, should be meaningless in the long run, right? It's, it's what does this mean for their financial and personal lives? And when I first started writing the book, I was kind of like all over the place. I did want to put things in a historical context, which I know that you also did, like when you went through your V1, V2, V3. It is a very effective teaching tool. If you want to tell someone where we're going to first tell them, well, here's how we got here, and here are the inputs that mattered throughout time. So I took that approach, and then I sort of went, my original plan was, let me go application by application, sort of like how the whole blockchain thing has evolved, right? So the first application was Bitcoin, which is meant to be money. 
though you know intelligent people can debate whether it is or it isn't, but that was the goal. Then the use cases expanded, and then we had some of the newer solutions like Ethereum, which were really just meant to be a platform, a place where different developers and entrepreneurs can come and build new products and services. And then it's gone on from there. Right? Like We're now seeing that blockchain and crypto are impacting even things like the US dollar. You mentioned one that failed to achieve that, a stable coin, but there are other ones that succeed. And then even funkier things like digital art and NFTs. So as I was going through all of these applications and also with the help of my editor, I realized that the unifying hook here is this idea of trust. Because one way to understand so much of how the world works is that people need to be clever about ways of trusting each other. Man, woman, people, we are a social animal and we do things much better as communities than we do individually. However, to do that, you have to overcome some pretty significant obstacles. Perhaps the biggest one being this paradox that the more trust-based any solution is, the greater the desire for somebody else to take advantage of it. Okay, so that sounds uh, subtle and complex. So we'll come back to that one. But just hearing you talk about trust in particular, and wondering where trust comes from. Uh, I remember the saying just in human interactions because it's often forgotten that all we're ever really dealing with is human interactions. I mean you need type in computers and you, you can have blockchains and you can have central banks and interest rates but actually all you've got is human beings. Generally cows and sheep don't get involved very much. So where does trust come from in, in human interactions? Well it, that's a sort of no doubt a philosophical Point, but I, I, I do remember the phrase that trust is hard to gain and is easily lost. You know, if we've met at an airport to get the same plane and for some reason we need to go together and you've done it nine times in a row, then you will, you will gain trust from having turned up. If you let me down the tenth time, that whoa, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's almost taken to, to minus ten score. You've almost, you know, ended up worse than before if, if there's some implication. And the thing about trust in financial services per se is that going back to this negative framing on central banks, and I was very interested to see recently that uh, Mervyn King, the last, as I regard them, proper governor of the Bank of England before it all turned globalist, actually gave some interviews recently where he was enormously, by central banker standards, critical of the sort of fuckwittery going on at the moment that oh maybe we'll interest, increase interest rates by half a percent so the real interest rate is only minus eight and a half and this should cover it. No it doesn't. I mean as somebody who was around in Volcker's time and was a fixed income guy, no no you've got to hack them up to 15% if you want to do it and of course loads of problems around that but from one perspective in 2008 the financial system blew up. It was, no, it was a bit like you let me down at the airport, you didn't come, my whole trip is, is ruined and what happened in, let's take America versus Iceland, I've mentioned this before, what happened in America was, quotes the authorities, the central banks decided to bankrupt the people, especially these poor people who'd been pushed into loans they couldn't really afford in changing economic circumstances, and save the system, save these extremely wealthy folks like yourself and, and your chums on uh, Wall Street. And in, interestingly, I always think that Iceland chose the opposite. Going back to train spotting, I choose the opposite. Uh, and they bankrupted the banks and didn't bankrupt the people, which is quite an interesting choice. So when 
somebody like me who's grumpy and just taking sort of pot shots at sort of crypto because they're sort of fed up with fed up with why you spend ages looking at a Greek hotel and it says double bed and we, we don't like tiny double beds. I'm quite tall, you know, why can't they fit a proper bloody bed in, in the thing kind of stuff, plus getting older and, and grumpier about it. It's very easy to take pot shots at crypto and no doubt I will take one or two a bit more, but actually you can also take a pot shot at FS and say, where does it trust in FS come from? Well, it's only because the central banks around the world, the governments, the state's power, monopoly on power and monopoly on, on money, stepped in and rescued the whole bloody thing that anybody has any trust in FS. If they hadn't, if it had been a purely free market system, and going back to historical perspective, central banks in the modern way are extremely new. The Federal Reserve is whatever, less than 100 years old or about 100 years old or something. And uh, frankly, there have been far more fuck-ups in FS since the, the Federal Reserve than, than before. Uh, I'm very much of the uh, opinion that the, the Fed's response to the crash was what led to the Great Depression in, um, in, in the States in the 30s, uh, that it was a, a central bank misallocation. That really, that, that, that FS isn't worthy of trust itself. It's only trusted because every time it fucks up, the banks go, oh, sorry, the central banks go, oh, we'll save everything. And then the average person on the street, your mum and dad or my mum and dad, who, who don't know any of this sort of detail, think that the banks can be trusted because actually they're always there with their money. Whereas if you put your money in crypto, it's disappeared. Well, if, if the central banks did the same thing for crypto exchanges or you know, crypto custodians, there would be no difference, would there? No. And the funny thing about financial services is that trust is the primary product. Unlike any other industry, you can even see it in the architecture. Like think of your you know, typical bank building with the Greek columns and all of that. In the names of... So many of the biggest institutions, you know, some of them have the word trust literally in the name. Bankers trust who nobody trusts anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, others are often like, you know, named some combination of like a rigid geographic figure and a dark color. So you have your, your black rock and black stone and uh, even the logos of many of the companies out there. So trust is the product because the thing that financial services at the best of times do offer is a way for different people who might not trust each other in a one-on-one -on -one setting still financially interact. You know, the, the simple example being that I might have some dollars that I would like to lend out to someone to earn interest, current macro policy and zero negative interest rates aside. In ordinary times, you know, I, it would be very difficult for me to go vet someone and be like, okay, you are a creditworthy borrower and I will lend you all my money and just pay me interest and then pay me back. Instead, what I do is I go to a bank. I deposit my money at the bank, which is effectively a loan. And then I let the bankers worry about checking credit worthiness and having a uh, diversified uh, balance sheet, etc. But unfortunately, the fact that we empower financial institutions to provide this trust service puts them in the position to abuse us, which is this cyclicality that you were referring to that in boom times, they start becoming more and more risky and doing more and more shady things with our money that we would not, rather they don't do. Then a crisis hits, they blow up, and sometimes they get bailed out. And while, yes, in the short term, the bailout is sold often in terms of sort of you know, protecting the everyman and preserving trust in the overall financial system, the fact that it needs to happen does really corrode trust. And I think it's fascinating that, uh, at least here in the States, if you look at the sort of like the Bernie Sanders left and the Donald Trump right, a lot of them, their 
the original sin is the 2008 financial crisis and this idea that became embedded into the culture that clearly the system is rigged and that like you know I, I still think it's remarkable i believe in 2011 the big american banks paid record compensation while doing a record number of foreclosures and so from a macro trust point of view that's the kind of thing that leads some people to start wondering if there is a better way and not so surprisingly bitcoin was born, born during that period yes you raise a number of fascinating points there and picking up all of those threads we, we, we could take several hours and i agree with you so let's just put one to the side because we've touched up touched on it before with mario in echo on um the future of the dollar as well as one or two on on gold uh, and silver which is that in old-fashioned left-wing terms by which i mean concern for the working classes rather than wokest stuff one of the critiques around 2008 was we the left we the marxists have long prophesied the collapse of capitalism now, huge problems around using that one word because it means absolutely anything. But anyway, put that to one side. But when it collapsed, we, over here, Gordon Brown, a pretty left-wing chancellor, bailed capitalism out. <laughs> you know, everyone was starting to get a hangover. So we, so Gordon Brown spent money as everyone passed, passed more champagne around to keep it going. So there are, forgetting capitalism and Marxism and stupid words like that, there are problems which we've touched on already this year in terms of fiat money which is in its own bubble, just in the way that, as I say, many of these tens of thousands of cryptos are in their own bubble. And that's the whole thing in itself. So let's try and narrow this one down a bit because it is a, a vast topic. And as I say, just talking and thinking, it occurs to me that the reason everybody trusts banks, but not everybody trusts Bitcoin or Bitcoin exchanges or wallets or, uh, or whatever, is simply because via institutions, almost all of which over here, and probably in America too, are not really serving the people anymore. They've been captured by the, the interests they're supposed to um, govern in some notorious cases. But the institutions spend our money to ensure cock-ups, catastrophic failures of trust in the financial services industry, but they don't do it in the blockchain-y uh, industry or, or anything like that. If, when people lost their money, the central bank stepped in and remunerated those people and regulated blockchain and all this kind of stuff, and maybe this is where we're heading towards the sort of CBDC as the merger of these two things, then people, your mum, my mum, your dad, my dad, would trust blockchain and Bitcoin and, and all these things as well. So yes, trust is a human thing, um, but trust in FS, because this is the whole point anyway. So from one perspective, what's the difference between a Bitcoin and a dollar? They're both some form of bits in a, in a computer. That's all. They're bits in a computer. They're not really real. They're not really real in the same way that in the Persian Empire, if you had, you know, 100 ounces of gold, it'd be worth something. You could do something with it. And you can do something with 100 ounces of gold today. That's the only thing that's preserved wealth over thousands of, of years. Whereas bits in a bank computer or before computers, somebody writing in a ledger saying that, you know, we've got this money and all that kind of stuff. So from that perspective, there isn't a difference. So let's just pick up this one because it's very relevant at the moment. As I mentioned, that sort of James Corbett's been banging on for some time. In terms of the things to be concerned about as, as citizens, uh, particularly after the World Economic Forum met recently with their private, uh, private police force walking around with machine guns, which was sort of very interesting for future history textbooks if it carries on that way in 50 years some kids will be bored at school about having to sort of study and yeah then the world economic forum 
had its own private police force with machine guns, and then a couple of years later they shot loads of people, etc., etc. But anyway, dystopia. How do you see this whole angle of potential coming together of fiat currency central banks, banks, with the whole crypto-y, blockchain-y, solution-y mumble-mumble, and ending up into some CBDCs, which can end up having a... One of the things I love about the, the, the alt space is that the motivation originally was freedom and liberty and all this kind of stuff. And you can transfer money and Trudeau can't stop you or anyone else can't stop you. But these two could come together in, in, in a very negative fashion, you know? How do you see that whole thing going? And how can the, the sane end of crypto, how can that remain outside being lassoed by the authorities and turned into CBDCs and just become something which ends up being inverted in its original purpose from what Nakamoto and friends were trying to do? In no more than six words, answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> quite, I agree. <laughs> what you said about Bitcoins and dollars all being bits, true, but two fundamental differences. One, Bitcoin has its own built-in payment system. And it's very unique as far as digital money is concerned. We have many different forms of digital money in the world today. Right? There's even like a sort of a proto-CBDC in the uh, central bank-run payment systems like uh, you know, Target 2 or Fedwire. I forget what the Bank of England's one is called. But they're digital payment systems that move central bank money. What's interesting about Bitcoin is unlike dollars, which either have to go through the private commercial banking system or the public Federal Reserve, um, you know, there's cash, but cash increasingly is just not an option. Bitcoin has its own what we call censorship-resistant payment system, meaning anybody on the planet can use it and nobody can stop anybody else from using it. So that's unique. And then the second bit is that Bitcoin inflation, at least base inflation, is algorithmically determined. Now, you could debate whether like the algorithm, the curve actually makes sense. And, you know, in a couple of years, it'll get cut in half again and, and eventually it goes to zero. And interesting debate about what does that mean when that happens. But this is a unique construct in the history of money that unlike gold, which was sort of like a slave to random discoveries of, and gold rushes, or fiat money, where, which is a slave to uh, you know, technocrats doing technocrat things, Bitcoin just has a formula that says, you know, if this, then create that many Bitcoins. Central bank digital currencies are sort of like the technocrats' attempt to prevent this new form of money from usurping their power. And it starts with their sort of ill-conceived conclusion. It's like, oh, well, if people just want digital money, we will give them digital money in the form of digital euros and pounds and dollars. But where all CBDCs will decidedly differ from how, say, Bitcoin works is one, while the government might build a blockchain payment system, it will not be censorship resistant. Like it's just that's not the, the trend in financial services has always been more censorship as mandated by governments. And the most recent examples being what you mentioned about, say, what Trudeau did or even like the U.S. government sanctions programs. CBDCs will be they'll actually be terrifyingly censorable because they will also be programmable. So the central bank will get to do things like issue digital fiat money in the event of a COVID-like crisis, but then they'll program your money to say like, well, you can only spend it at pre-approved merchants 
and you can't deposit it into Robinhood or even save the money because if you save it in two weeks, it's programmed to disappear. And then the supply of it will most definitely not be determined by a algorithm. It will be determined by technocrats in ways that they could only dream of today. I agree. So? <laughs> <laughs> But let's put these two things together, right? Like, I think it's going to be interesting. I'm not one of these people who thinks that, like, you know, the fiat currencies will fall and we'll all just be using, like, Bitcoins to live our lives. There are many reasons why that probably won't happen. I think it'll be very interesting to live in a world where they coexist. Because your friendly local central banker's desire to weaponize the programmability of their CBDC is going to be challenged in a world where you have potentially a wallet on your smartphone that can hold digital euros or bitcoins. And when they come and say like, oh, well, these digital euros now have a pre-programmed negative interest rate, like your money's just going to disappear overnight, then you're like, well, I'm just going to opt out of that and switch to bitcoin. Yes. So it is kind of looking through a glass darkly at this point insofar as the prime motivation of the somewhat sort of sociopathic, self-styled elite, the Gateses, the Soroses, the CIA, the MI6s, is clearly around control. And it's quite clear from the last couple of years that there is no limit to what they will do to control to an insane amount that none of our ancestors could ever have imagined. So in terms of your Gdankin of a wallet where you've got you know, digital dollars, digital sterling, digital euros and, your, and your, your bitcoins and all this kind of stuff on it. As we've seen, as we've seen, there's this word regulation and, you know, it's very easy for... And they've talked about it quite a lot and, and, and some governments have gone near there and then pulled back and all that kind of stuff. But the ever-expanding law, there's no particular reason in principle, is there, why governments couldn't say, oh, you know... Bitcoin and cryptos, they're all using for financing crime and breaking sanctions and, you know, all these terrible things and, um, uh, and therefore they need regulating and therefore we need to control it and, and all this kind of stuff. So in a sense, if one's talking about the central thrust as being this dystopian panopticon control of as much as possible of people's lives in ever greater detail, presumably the question that you and I don't know and we will find out over the next few years is... How much can they control? Because this is, comes back to the Tower of Babel and, and all this kind of stuff, that humanity is somehow set up in such a way that you can't control it all, all the time. And it doesn't matter whether you're the Soviet Union or whether you're the Qing Empire. There's a degree at which your control starts to fray at the margin. You know, there's a degree at which people will always go off-grid. And, and I remember the um, World Economic Forum, you know, you'll own nothing, we'll own everything, and we'll be pissing ourselves laughing. Or maybe they didn't have that last bit on it. But actually, even in that video, it said, oh, there are some poor, stupid saps that don't realise how wonderful it is owning nothing and eating maggot burgers and living in a pod in the, in the city and working in tech. And those poor folks, that you know, they'll be living in the woodlands, making fires, dancing, sex, drugs and rock and roll and having a terrible time. And everyone goes, think, hang on, uh, <laughs> I don't think I like maggot burgers. I think I'll, I'll, I'll do that one. So there is an extent to which, just using the phrase off-grid, which cryptos will remain off-grid? Let's say, for example, Bitcoin's so well known. I mean, you've, you, you haven't really t talked about what's Bitcoin, what's blockchain, what's crypto. These words tend to be interchangeable. But for the sake of argument, 
all politicians have heard of Bitcoin. Oh, we'll regulate Bitcoin. Well, there's a bunch of shit they ain't heard of. So maybe that one is still off grid, you know? And I, so, so maybe going back to your wallet, your Bitcoin suddenly gets regulated, but 57,000 other cryptos don't. And then going back to physical like silver and gold, maybe then actually people start trading in with silver coins. It seems to me that we're really talking about how far the sort of circle of control goes. Mm -hmm. And I think that the circle of control can't go to 100%. Right. They can never control a piece of silver. I could bury some in the garden yes. and I could give it to my neighbour. Or we could. Let's give a simple example of, the, uh, of um, Bridget's uh, created a, um, uh, for, the, for the avenue, she created a, a gardening club recently. And what they all started doing is trading cuttings. Now, in the past, people didn't get together. They would go to the garden centre. They would engage in a financial transaction if they wanted to buy this rose or, or this aspidistral or whatever. But now they swap, well, they swap cut, cuttings. So if you like, that, that's, a being, that's an example of a local community definancializing, pulling out of a system where it requires currency, pulling out of a system where every transaction is taxed. And nobody cares if you give a few rose cuttings away. No one's keeping track of it all. It's just, again, it's a community and a trust. Yeah, so um, we're already seeing governments trying to regulate Bitcoin. And they will. They have and they will continue to. However, I'm a big middle-of-the-road type of guy. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is it cannot be regulated at the core infrastructure layer because the blockchain, the technology that it uses, is designed to be censorship resistant and autonomous and community controlled. Just on that one, because that's an interesting technical point. Sorry to interrupt, uh, having waffled on for so long. And this relates to things I've heard from a couple of people over the years. And this is literally just a couple, but very reliable sources. This is over decades. That the swift payments thing yep. is occasionally diverted, shall we say, by people with lots of influence who want certain transactions not to go in a certain direction. So even something which most payments people think is 100.000% reliable, uh, the likes of, uh, of people with power um, can make that change. And in the same way, so going back to, to Bitcoin, and maybe just to just in passing, just on the Bitcoin, when you say Bitcoin, what do you mean? Because as far as I know, and I don't follow it in detail anymore, but there are several Bitcoins after all these various yes. forks. I don't know which one is the, is the main one. But off the top of my head, one of the sad things about Bitcoin, I thought decentralized, I love decentralized, eliminate the central power, fantastic. But then Perversity, before you know it, half a dozen Chinese miners are doing 99% like of the mining or something like that. And then again, just going back to a theory. So let's say you're the CIA or the MI6 or someone with huge amounts of power. These people that ruin uh, every Iranian's life every day. When they're not busy doing that, they presumably could go around and sort of see the, the six people that run these six Chinese mining companies and say, we know where your grandkids live or something. I'm just talking in theory. Yep. Yeah, without, uh, without boring your audience to sleep, there is an elegance to the design of Bitcoin that it is very resilient to exactly the scenario that you described. And we actually saw a test case of it where there used to be that a lot of the mining, mining is the, actually the process of securing the network. Um, and it results that the people who do it, who are volunteers, and they could be known or pseudonymous, get rewarded with inflation, with fresh Bitcoins. A lot of it used to be in China. And then uh, at one point, the Chinese government last year really cracked down on it. Uh, and then it just moved. And the network actually, as one would expect a decentralized, resilient network to deal, it, it evolved to deal with it. And now there's actually a lot more mining in America than there used to be. And sure, the US government can go to the American miners and put pressure on them to do or not do certain things. But that would just mean that those miners become less competitive. They become less profitable. And now maybe a El Salvadorian miner or an Icelandic miner or a Iranian miner um, picks up the slack. So 
what is already happening is that because it's becoming increasingly obvious that at the infrastructure layer, at the payment system layer, there's very little you can do to make Bitcoin be different than what it is. Most of the regulation is now done at the edges, the places where people interact with it. So that could be the exchange where you go to buy your Bitcoin. It could be the fintech that you use to access certain kinds of crypto. Uh, and I actually think this is a good bargain for society in general. Yes, I can see that. And of course, that when you've got a single point of failure like Swift, the kind of people who sort of, you know, chase Edward Snowden around the world could quite easily turn up there and say, uh, excuse me, do you mind just popping out for lunch? <laughs> We're borrowing your computer for 10 minutes and reroute some tran transaction. Um, and and as, as you rightly say, and I don't know whether this is just complete incompetence or what, but uh, it's an act of insanity, which has been increasing over time, the extent to which America is using what was the global currency, which gave it huge advantages, as a weapon of economic war. Indeed. Bloody shooting themselves in the foot. Anyway, so be it. Good luck to them. And we've seen that and we get this multipolar world and, and all this kind of jazz. So yes, so I take the point about the Bitcoin thing being more resilient. Well, maybe just touch on uh, one thing before we, you give me a little bit about your feel uh, for, the, for the, the future. So we talk about crypto and the, the word is a collective noun. Well, it's a bit like talking about sport. And if I said to you, I like sport, I like doing sport, I do it every day. You'd think that's a meaningless thing. You say, well, what do you do? Do you do swimming? Do you do running? Do you play cricket every day? I mean, it, it, it makes a hell of a difference. And in the same way, we talk about old oh, Bitcoin and, and crypto. And, but there's gazillions and some of them are complete scams and deliberately set up to be scams. And yes. some of them are crazy, like stable coins that sort of change value about a million percent. So how do you very briefly and then tell us a little bit about your vision of the future? How do you, as somebody immersed in this world, lecturing about the world, how the hell do you get a grip on a word like crypto? It's a bit like saying human beings, are they good or bad, Mike? <laughs> well, yeah, there's a bit of a spectrum there. And it depends what you mean by good and depends what you mean by bad. <laughs> yes. Well, the way I teach my class is actually we boiled in things down into some very basic first principles. And then we leverage off of how the world already works. So if, if someone comes and says like, oh, here's a crypto type solution for borrowing and lending. Well, we know how borrowing and lending works because it's something human beings have been doing it for thousands of years. So then you can sort of like see if the proposed decentralized crypto-ish version of that passes a basic smell test. The thing with the scams and Ponzi's and whatnot, yes, they're there, though I think a lot of times... I don't like the use of the term like a Ponzi because, you know, Bernie Madoff was a liar. Like he just, from a trust standpoint, right? Like he lied to his investors about what he was doing. What often happens in crypto, because one of the first principles of the industry is total transparency, is even projects like that stablecoin that just blew up, Luna, the people behind it were 100% honest from day one. They were wrong. Right? They said, we're gonna, we figured out some newfangled model for pegging a currency to another. And a lot of people, including me, were very skeptical of that model. But they were honest. And that's one of the fascinating things about crypto. So there's a lot of crazy experimentation. And a lot of the things that people try, like those Luna-type algorithmic stablecoins, end catastrophically. But every once in a while, one of those things, they hit on some kind of a new financial model, some kind of new way to build trust among people that could very well be revolutionary down the world. So while I encourage everyone to be very skeptical of a lot, 
do generally be open-minded that there's something interesting going on here. So it's like a, a Precambrian explosion. You got all, suddenly you've got these crazy millions of types of new organisms. Most of them are shite. They're not going to. They're not going to survive. But actually, you know, uh, after a while, you find that sort of lizards are still going, and yeah. that sort of somehow T. Rex turned into a sparrow and is now flying around, and uh, uh, you know, through a crazy um, um, process. So no, I, I, I quite like that, and I think to that extent, it's good that most of it is out of the range. I'm, I'm, I keep insulting you, I'm not insulting, but I keep su suspecting your, your parents shouldn't be messing in crypto. Mine certainly shouldn't be messing in, uh, in crypto, nor my kids. Okay, so I get that. So there's all this uh, thing. So anyway, the future, what do you see the future? What do you see with us in five years, 10 years time? Utopian direction, dystopian direction, and whereabout in the middle do you think we may end up? What's the probability distribution looking like right now? I think crypto generally goes in the utopian direction because it is a new way for people to build trust. And it does, well, it will <laughs> once people figure out the kinks. And there are a lot of kinks. Uh, but once people figure out the kinks, it will enable for communities of people to do things like interact financially in ways that does not that eliminates some of the most dystopian actors in the world today. Everything from corrupt bankers to arrogant central bankers to actual criminals. So in that sense, I'm very optimistic. However, it's going to take a lot of experimentation. There are a lot of models that nobody has figured out, which is not surprising. You go back to the people who were there in the 1980s and 90s, in the very early days of the internet. Almost none of them actually predicted the successful models, even with things like banks and fintechs. So I think the, the advice is to just be curious and learn for now and don't overcommit to anything. Yes, I agree entirely. My position has always been that I regarded Nakamoto's original paper, which is very simple and very clear from a computer science perspective, as very innovative and a very clever way of getting around the replicability uh, issue of, of anything uh, in bits, in, insofar as if I, have, um, if I have some bits on my computer of John Lennon singing, give peace a chance, I can copy them and send them to you and there could be billions of copies. And he found a very, very, very clever way around that, which is good. We've seen the social evolution of Bitcoin in terms of the interaction between technology and people and forks and all these kind of things. And I think that, you know, with one or two more great leaps forward, we might get something very useful. And having said that, as something of a, uh, a not, not quite neoconvert to be a gold bug, but as somebody who appreciates the precious metals are, are here to stay, even if they are not so sexy. Of course, the, the one big uh, vulnerability, but then this applies to almost all business these days, of crypto is the internet. And we keep hearing there's going to be cyber attacks and, and all these kind of stuffs. And, you know, again, in terms of dystopian uh, direction, and, and I don't want to keep pointing in the dystopian direction, but uh, uh, as a risk guy, you know, I used to get paid to worry about what could go wrong and, and sort of how we avoid it kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, we could have some cyber pandemic in two years' time and, oh, the internet's gone down. Mm -hmm. The trouble with that is that actually it, it'll affect absolutely everything. Uh, and then vice versa, there's a part of me that just wants to go back to being Neanderthal and living in a cave and banging the rocks together because uh, I've had a bit of a, a surfeit of technology. So that's uh, a very uh, fascinating tour, Doris Song. I mean, I think the one thing that comes out of this is that is having been an author and having been a lecturer, you have a nice, simple clear understanding. It's a bit like you've got a Christmas tree and the baubles are hung around <laughs> in a very methodical fashion, which is invaluable because we need a frame to sort of hang off the millions of facts that uh, 
come our way and make sense. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank you listeners out there, all of you uh, investors in crypto, uh, all you crypto curious and all you crypto skeptical. And we'll all see what the future holds together. That's a good thing about the future. It tends to come all of its own, actually. We didn't have to do very much and it turns up tomorrow. We go to bed, we go up in the morning and it's slightly changed or sometimes changed a lot. I'd like to thank my brand partner for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So maybe you'd like to tell the listeners, Omid, about how to find out about your books or Substacks or, or Mediums or whatever they are, or hire you as consultant. Yeah, thank you. So uh, my new book, uh, Rearchitecting Trust, is now available for pre-order or order at Amazon and your uh, favorite other online bookstore. I also write a periodic blog on medium.com. If you just Google Omid Malikan, all of this comes up. The blog is for more contemporary subjects like that Luna stablecoin that you mentioned blowing up. And I do encourage everybody to... So quick funny segue, I once went to an Amazon bookstore and I tried to get them to put my first book in the bookstore. And the friendly manager there gave me a phone number to call, and he said they will probably never get back to you. However, I would, uh, I would encourage you to be patient and to be persistent. And uh, I think that's very good advice for anybody trying to learn about this topic. It's worth learning about, but you have to be patient and persistent. Ah, oh, excellent, excellent. Well, I encourage listeners to check out, and as I say, I'm certainly talking to you before uh, and, and now, um, and having spoken to a lot of people in, in, in the crypto industry, obviously, over the last decade, uh, myself, even if we haven't done many uh, podcasts on it, although we did do the whole of the, uh, the country of Tuvalu being all its rec- government records being put on a blockchain, which was quite interesting. Although in that context, the word blockchain has tended to be watered down to a database, um, as, as it can do. I've been impressed by your simple, clear understanding of it. And normally, as guests are representing a company, they all explain at this point, uh, what stuff they're selling and, and how they need partners in Bolivia or something <laughs> like that. But uh, as we started off with your career uh, history, how do you see your career going forward? I mean, what does somebody who's uh, slightly younger than myself, perhaps, uh, although with similarly impressive hairstyle, how do you see uh, as, a, as a crypto person um, the future of people like yourself uh, in the industry? Are you going to spend the next few decades writing books and, and, and lecturing? Or do you see yourself being a founder or... I don't know. It's strange. As it's a developing industry, it's very hard to know what the niches are. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see myself as a founder, but I do see somebody as sort of like a founder whisperer because I really enjoy living at this intersection of the old and the new. And I do work occasionally as a consultant to people like corporate executives. So if somebody were to come to me and be like, I run a fintech and I think this crypto stuff could have a potential impact on my business down the road, then I would really enjoy having that kind of a challenge to work with a founder to figure out how their business and business model might change down the road. Excellent, because I think you would be very good at that. And wearing my governance hat uh, and having done mentoring for over a couple of dozen of founders the, the last of a couple of years, I found out experientially that there is great value for anybody who's nose to the grindstone 24-7 to having somebody who, mixing all my metaphors, can see the wood from the trees, who comes from a further distance, 
who, whether it's a non-executive director that comes once a month or once every three months, or whether it's an advisory director, or whether it's a mentor, or whether it's just a consultant to kick stuff around with, then I can see that it would be really valuable for the relevant listeners to, to have somebody like you to speak to, whether it's Omid uh, Malikan or somebody else, to have somebody, even if you just chat to them once a month or once a three month uh, about it, and if, and if they listen and validate and say, yeah, I think that's a really good idea, great, I can't see anything wrong, well, you've had validation. And if they say, yeah, well, well, there's also this. Oh, I haven't thought of that. And that thing, I've, you know, in terms of having interviewed you know, 100 people on the board, that thing is immensely valuable. Immensely valuable. I mean, I, I can think of one example where it saved a company from going bankrupt. Somebody said something that this is not wise. They, did, they all thought it was wise, but they listened to this person. And a year later, it turned out that it was essential to stopping the company from going bust. So, you know, these, these things are really valuable. So I wish you every success in the future. And I await with interest the development of both regular money, all the cryptos, gold and silver. And thank you very much for that. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts, in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance with me.